0: I am Doug Friedman.
1: And I am Barbara Friedman.
0: And this is Your Mental Breakdown.
1: The podcast.
0: <laughs> That's right. Welcome back, Mommy.
1: Well, thank you for having me. You're
0: welcome. Well, you're having me. You had me. You had me many years ago. I did have ago. you. That's yes. right.
1: Uh-huh. Once, that was enough.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm glad that we're getting to do this again. We did Drew the first time. Now we're talking about Sarah. And that was exciting for me to have you do this because I it's somebody who grew up in a cult. And I know you have experience working with that slightly different type of thing and a different era. When you were practicing way back when in the 1870s, when was it? Somewhere around there. Right. It made a real impression on me, like that kind of work that you were doing.
1: Well, wow, I didn't even know you were that tuned into what I was doing.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, in a very big way. Hmm. I, I actually did care about you back then, Mom.
1: Okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but he, it was around the time, I think, in high school that I was first understanding what mental illness even was. Hmm. And I remember distinctly being on a, a baseball road trip, and there was a, a TV movie called Sybil, Based on the book that was on, and it was dealing with what was then called multiple personality disorder. Right. Now dissociative identity disorder. Right. And I I remember, (laughs) I remember my teammates came back from being out that night right when like the TV show was or the movie was reaching its climax. They kind of ruined it for me. So I called you, and was like, "Mom, tell me what happens. Tell me, you know, I was really interested in it, and I knew that that's the world you worked in."
1: Hmm, that's, that's so interesting to me to hear that about you now.
0: What I remember, you worked with deprogramming people coming out of cults.
1: I mean, I could tell you about some of the dynamics that were going on and some of the elements that were involved in the work. So without revealing anybody's identity or anything like that. Right. So... I just realized it might've been very interesting to you.
0: <laughs> it was. And it was also, I think, part of why you became so protective, not just about your client's confidentiality, but about the safety and security of your family. I remember things like you not wanting to have your phone number listed back in the old days of like having hardline phones in the house. And I do remember there was one day in particular And I think it was your daughter, my sister, who came home and saw two animals that were maybe sacrificed or just killed in your parking spot, our parking spot. And it was shocking. And yet that was kind of par for the course because you were, the cults, I think that you were working with were more ritualistic in nature. I do remember things like that and you just being very protective of Of your family, of us.
1: Well, and I think because in that era, as far as therapists go, a lot of things were going on in the therapeutic world. Like, first of all, people who were working with that kind of clientele were being discredited as practitioners, for one thing. Right. And for another thing, there wasn't really too much of a way to verify what was going on with the people who were abusing the clients. Right. So a lot of it was shrouded in mystery and and a lot of it was just not known.
0: When I think about my teenage years and you being a therapist and working with clients that were coming out of cults, my sample size for what a client was, it was very small. It was just you and your clients. I didn't know anything. So for me, I kind of thought anybody that was in a cult is going to have multiple personality disorder. And that meant. Every client is going to be almost like 12 clients in one.
1: Oh, wow. It's amazing the conceptions that you build up in your mind.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, even now to this day, I think I'm an incredible athlete, very, very smart, and I could do just about anything I set my mind to.
1: As I said, it's incredible. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right? The conceptions and misconceptions in our minds. right? <laughs> and MPD for me was really, really interesting because, it, I mean, a client that could present one day as a six-year-old kid uh, or a 60-year-old person or anywhere in between.
1: I tend to be a little bit skeptical. What was important to me was that at the time I was starting out part of my internship, was at the biofeedback institute in Los right. Angeles. Right. So I was able to connect my clients to the biofeedback machines which had, were computer driven. Right. And every time they switched personalities, all of the readings on the screen would just like that would they right. would all change. Right. And people would have different blood pressure and different skin galvanic skin responses and all sorts of different physical conditions.
0: Yeah, I remember seeing things about artwork and how clients could have completely different styles of artwork, and it was the same client, but different personalities that were coming out that were doing the art.
1: Right, and they they would write with different hands.
0: Like right and left, not just different handwriting. (laughs) Exactly. Wow. And it's also to me, again, as a kid, was scary because there were times when I would go to see you in your office, not professionally, um, (laughs) and there would be a hole in the wall like, oh, what happened? And you were pretty transparent. You'd say, oh, one of my clients did it, but I was very safe. It was okay. I was never in danger. And I don't know if you were masking that or not, but that happened. I remember as a kid, just being both scared, intrigued, and just didn't really understand, but enough that when I saw that, TV movie of Sybil, I called you and was really interested. And that did not make me want to become a therapist in any way. It was just made me interested in my mom's work.
1: How interesting in itself, right? Right. I mean, because I never set out to work with this patient population. I just, I was literally led into the process. I started out at the vet center working with Vietnam era vets. right, And One of the counselors there showed me a a film of a vet in a session who had multiple personality disorder. And he switched personalities, and I asked what that was, and he told me that it was multiple personality disorder, which I'd never heard of. We never studied it in school. And about 15 or 20 minutes later, that same veteran walked in Oh, wow. The counselor said he hadn't seen him in a a couple of years, so he walked in 20 minutes later, and we started having a conversation. He was actually a highly educated person with a doctorate degree in education, and we started talking about existential ontological security. Okay. And I was like amazed that one of the guys who walked into the vet center could talk about something like that. He was pretty much amazed that one of the counselors knew
0: <laughs> Right.
1: Anyway, he wanted to do therapy with me there. And the policy there was that you couldn't turn a client away. Oh, wow. So I took him on as a client and very... so. Shortly after that, he started splitting in his sessions and changing personalities in his sessions with me. As soon as the door was closed and we were talking, he would change. He was the one who suggested that I come to the feedback Center and start working there because there was a much better level of understanding and therapeutic work that could be done there.
0: Yeah, I remember when you were working at the Vet Center, because I I remember actually at another young, impressionable age, seeing some of the movies there or some of the films. I don't think there were movies. It was just film footage and seeing what it actually looked like when people were in war and what happened. It's not just a TV show where you see a red dot when somebody gets shot. It looks a lot different. And it was really eye-opening to see this is, oh, this is real life. This is what happens in real life. And it's a lot different than we've seen it portrayed. And that I think is true of many, many things, right? And that's partly why we do this podcast to show people what real sessions with the therapist can sound like.
1: Right. And that's so important in my opinion, because real therapy is very different from staged therapy.
0: Hmm. Yeah. staged therapy. Talk about that for a second. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, when you're conscious that's, that you have an audience hmm. if the therapist is conscious of it and the client is conscious of it, then in some ways, I think it can contaminate the the therapy process right because part of what makes therapy so sacred is the privacy of it all
0: right right, and that that's why we protect confidentiality so much, and that's why it's it isn't necessarily a public thing. I think people being more public about it is great. And people talking about being in therapy, what they learned in therapy, great. But actual sessions, that's different.
1: Sure. And I think when people are willing to reveal things about themselves, because they have that choice, it's very different from if something about a person is being revealed without his saying so.
0: Right, and that, and even for this podcast, which all twelve of our listeners will appreciate, (laughs) that I have had people want to work with me to be on the podcast, and I will screen them. And some of them do just want people voyeuristically to listen to what they're doing, and that's not the right fit for for therapy, not for the podcast, but for therapy. I've even had a, a client that is a client of mine, that a fairly well known client. And when I first got them and we were talking about it and I was telling them that I was going to do a podcast, they were very willing to be recorded for the podcast. And I thought, ooh, that's exciting because, you know, they're a name, they're known. This is going to bring a lot of people in. And then I realized, no, that's what their life is about. Their work is about. They need a space that is separate from that. And they need to not have that and not have it be, like you said, Ma, staged therapy. Well,
1: I think you're right. And there's something about therapy that to me feels like a sacred trust hmm. that it's a relationship between people that's unlike any other relationship they have. And in the sense that there's an intimacy and self revelation that's hmm. different from the way people generally converse.
0: Yeah. And it, people ask me about being transparent in sessions, and it's something I do fairly often. As it serves the client, and I'm adamant about that, because I think and we've talked about this, that other therapists reveal things, and it's just them working their stuff out in session that's wrong. that's actually not the way it's supposed to go. And I think that when we're doing that, we're building that that trust and rapport and that relationship with client and therapist, that's so important. I mean, you've said it even on the last episode that you did with me, like, oh, I can see how you can do that now with Drew. Because you have that trust and and you have that rapport, right? And that's something that you didn't grow up with the way, by grow up, I mean (laughs) learn therapy, learn how to do what you're doing. That wasn't taught.
1: No, it wasn't. And what was interesting to me is that somewhere along the line, as I was getting to the end of graduate school, I was very aware of something that one of my professors mentioned, which was that there's the skill and the craft of doing therapy. And then there's the art of doing therapy. And there's quite a difference between the art of therapy and the craft of therapy. From my point of view, you've elevated the work of therapy to an art.
0: Thank you. And you're clearly biased being my mom, but I'll take it. It's, it's something that I talk Yeah, I'm stepping on you. That's right. <laughs> it's something I talk about quite a bit. And I didn't know that you had that experience with a professor in school because I say, Therapy is part art, part science. And the science part is what we go to school for, what you learn clinically, what we we research and study, and we really hone. Like you said, that's the craft. And the art is being creative, being as personable and transparent as you're comfortable as the therapist, as is called for by the client, and like just getting a feel for somebody and something. And I, having been a musician and, and having acted like that, that's the art. I love the art.
1: I think that's one of the things I admire about the way you practice is because this being the second client of yours that I've been fortunate enough to discuss with you, it strikes me is that you do very different work from your style of working with each of your clients is very different and very personally honed to their nature. Right. But underneath it, it there's a, a consistent thread of doing therapy at a level of high integrity. Right. So you you, you cover both of those areas really well.
0: Thank you. Again, you're my mommy, so you have to say, well, no, you don't don't. have to say nice. Yeah, that's true.
1: And you you know, knowing me as your mother, I wouldn't. That's
0: that's right. (laughs) Well, speaking of saying nice things, the session you are about to hear, sort of like what we're talking about, that transparency, Sarah was a little anxious right off the bat because she was running late to our session. She needed a minute to kind of collect herself and she was a little anxious, a little frustrated and it was really cool to see her have that be okay as opposed to completely derail her and and have us veer way off. Oh
1: but nice.
0: We got to kind of touch it right at the beginning and even slightly before we hit record we were just kind of like processing a little bit of that initial anxiety that she had but Mm -hmm. you guys will hear it we will be back with you shortly and we'll break it on down sounds good all right
2: again why i'm in therapy and then i was like what would doug do
0: we do just get frustrated, and it, it happens like that, yeah. like it happens quick, because we just have a reaction to things. And this is why it's sort of what we do and how we do it this way is more subtle, because we're trying to, to tweak that programming at the root of that, right? Because those moments you don't consciously think that, you just get anxious at first. So you notice the anxiety first, then maybe you get a sense of where it's coming from.
2: When I stopped freaking out, I was able to work through it. I'm trying,
0: trying. Well, you're not just trying, you're doing. Allowing yourself to kind of have the experience of like, wait, wait. And then in real time going, wait, 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 wait. This is okay. This is. It, it's that, that wait, 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 wait that most people don't have. They just get that panic anxious.
2: Here's the odd thing. When my daughter has these same types of reactions to life. Right. It's very easy for me to tell her, "Let's step back. Let's take a breath." Right. Why is that not my reaction? Because I know what what should happen, right? And I'm I'm able to teach it to my daughter, but not somehow able to tell my own brain, "Yeah, you should be doing the exact same fucking thing." You cracker.
0: Right, right there, right there. <laughs> That's because part of it is you will start to punish yourself and criticize yourself for not doing it, as opposed to, Oh, you can be doing this. Wow. I'm so glad that I can see there's a way for me to do this. Cool. I'm teaching myself. Wow. That's one thank you for being so nurturing to myself self. We don't, we don't do that.
2: So I can tell other people what to do. I just can't do it myself.
0: Because seeing something objectively is much easier than seeing it in our subjective experience because we have so many triggers and responses, reactions, right?
2: It's so true. I, in fact, I've had a whole week of this nonsense. Mm-hmm. I've had a very stressful <laughs> overall from my landlords raising our monthly rent. Top of that, I got hit with a medical bill that I had no idea about. So many crazy, weird things. And one of my main excellent points is budgeting hmm. but it goes toward my neurosis and towards my awesomeness <laughs> because on one hand it allows me to always be fully aware of my my financial picture right and this is my brain right so in my brain i know what's going on and all of a sudden there was just all this stuff coming at me and I was like, oh my, god, oh my god and finally i just was like breathe open my bread <laughs> spreadsheet and just start adding all the numbers and see how dire my situation
0: is. Pause for a second. When you just when you said that last bit, did that feel different for you?
2: Just the fact that I stopped myself from—I went to reach for my Xanax, like I was starting stressed, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna hold on a second. And I started to sort of
0: right, right. But what what felt different? What felt different? And how did you do that? How did you shift right there?
2: Yeah, I mean, the stopping and, I don't know, just kind of recognizing the headspace I was in and thinking of a way to pull myself out of that headspace into a more productive headspace, which allowed me to kind of conquer both battles, right? Sure. Figure out my finances and stop stressing as much.
0: That's actually amazing because that that's what it's yeah. all about. In that moment, before you were able to stop and pause, what were you feeling?
2: I was feeling like everything was out of control. It's like nothing makes sense and I have to fix it. Yeah,
0: and you're making those wild hand gestures. So it's, it's yep. like I was feeling out of control. I was feeling anxious, right? Out of control, overwhelmed, too much. Even if I were the kind of therapist, and I'm not, that would tell you what to do with each particular thing, it actually wouldn't help. It would feed that mechanism more than you realize.
2: I, I actually appreciate yeah. that. I totally understand that because it's a neurosis right. defect that I have. The deeper I go into the bits and pieces, the more...
0: Right. And, and here's... You ready to flip your noodle on this one? Is if you or I gave you answers to all of those things you would not feel more settled and it would actually be sort of positive reinforcement for something negative in a way or ineffective. So it's ineffective reinforcement because it means so I can have all of these things coming at me, feel incredibly overwhelmed, get an answer and then feel better. So that's how I learn to repeat the cycle and get that need met. It will manifest in a way that you will see either in yourself or in other people where they need to create a crisis or such drama or such overwhelm in order to reach out for help or for support. Why is this person always sounding so helpless? Well, that's how they learn to get help.
2: I'm very judgy of people like that. I don't appreciate people who can't figure their own stuff out, right. but I totally understand what you're saying there and how, the negative reinforcement would be actually, especially in my case, even more powerful than what we're sort of focusing on, which is, okay, like you always tell me, okay, take a breath. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Stop for a second. Take a breath. So, Right. To make matters worse, boyfriend is terrible when it comes to financial anything. He doesn't want to talk about it.
0: I'm jumping in to stop you. I want to positively reinforce the good habits Mm -hmm. and you can vent the negative stuff. Sure. And a lot of therapy is just venting.
2: So the reason I was bringing that up was because this was the first time I actually stopped and realized, hold on a second. He is not the person I need to be going to at this juncture because now he's feeling my stress and then his stress. It's the only thing he he will ever stress about, Right. right? Because he has his own business, which is still in its sort of infant stages. So I am the sugar mama or financial, you know, I'm financially responsible for our household right. overall at the moment. So I think already that's a sore point for him. And he, like I told you in many sessions, he takes care of so many things sure. that I can't, you know, with kids, with
0: Here's my jumping because yeah. you, you can go off and you can tell me more and maybe a good therapist would let you. But I'm jumping because <laughs> I, I, see, I see areas where we can tweak and fine tune and I, and I want to see how this goes.
2: Okay, perfect.
0: He is the absolute worst person for you to go to for financial advice for every little detail that's going on. He might be the best person to go to if he could throw his arms around you, give you a hug and help you slow it down. Pause. Yep. If he knows that that's what you actually need when you bring all this stuff to him, now he can actually do something because answering the financial stuff, he can't do that. Mm -hmm. It can be incredible for you. The thing that we need to do more than anything is just bring that anxiety level down a little bit because you can take care of your shit very, very well. So it has to reach like that point. Had it up to here, like it, it, it's above your eyes. You can't even see. Your anxiety is above your eyes. So when I hear people there, I'm not gonna talk details at all. I'm gonna talk anxiety. I'm gonna talk how do we bring that level down below your eyes, maybe below your neck. Maybe you can just sit at your chest. It doesn't have to go all the way down, but let's just go here so we can now have a conversation, which is what you did beautifully, when you were like, stop, 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 hang on, let me look at this, let me check my spreadsheet. You could do that when your head wasn't submerged in that anxiety of all this stuff and the wild hand gestures, and you were able to bring it back down. So again, maybe the function of going to boyfriend for support and how you can tell him when you're not anxious in a, in a mellow conversation, hey, you know, when I come to you with all this stuff, you know what I actually need? I just need you to help me pause. I just need your arms around me or something so that anxiety level can go from over my eyes to just under my chin.
2: For everything that gives me anxiety in my life, including my ex-husband, anything that happens. Boyfriend. Is literally the person you want in your corner. He's like I told you, so calm, just very reassuring. And he brings me right back, except finances. And it just hit me. The other day, I was like, I'd be better off going to my brother ah. about my stress level on this, because he's like a mathematician. I think there's a sensitivity surrounding boyfriend. As soon as he senses stress on my end financially, instead of just giving me a hug and saying, you know, we'll just work it out. He goes straight to well, we can, are we living above our means? Like, what can we cut out? And he starts getting even more stressful. And then I'm like, Oh no 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 no! Right. <laughs> oh no 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 no! Back up. That's
0: great realization for you. Like, let me go to my brother, not him. Yeah. Because when I go to boyfriend, he's triggered,
1: and exactly.
0: what he feels is that guilt, shame, embarrassment. So what he does with those is he for gets no defensive. Reason. Well, for his reason. Sure. His reason, his subjective reason that you can't see, that's his. He owns that.
2: Where we start having financial conversations and he starts getting very, like, touchy and kind of moody, and, like, really, like, like, am I making you feel this feeling somehow? I have to give that back to him because I think that's his own whatever is going on. And as much as I've tried to pull it out of him, I just don't think he's. I don't even know if he knows what that is. Right, right. So I don't know. My lesson was just boyfriend, not the person to go to comfort when I'm having financial stress. So that,
0: was that You just said a couple of things that are amazing because it's reshaping you and it's positively reinforcing you that, okay, I don't go to boyfriend. For that, I go to my brother. Okay, he has his stuff. I'm going to let him have it. That's his. Okay. The way that you're talking to yourself through me, but it's really you saying it, I'm saying it back to you. You're, you're saying all the right stuff. It's amazing.
2: No, yeah, it's because you've been teaching me that.
0: That's true. And I want to be very clear that you talking to me and us talking about this, this is you, you're doing the work. Most of what I'm doing, I hold the mirror up to you so you can see yourself. Yeah. I get a sense of who you are, how you are how you parent your kids, how you weren't parented. And I hear you and I reflect it back. And in a sense, you and I are parenting you the way you didn't get parented. So anything that you go, oh, I get it from you, Doug. Okay. And I get it from you. So you're hearing yourself. <laughs> really? I mean, I'm a, I'm a cool. damn good interpreter. I'll take that. What you're talking about, what you're actually doing, not just trying, because you are doing this is in effect, parenting the version of yourself that didn't get parented. And it's the same little girl that went to the library and was reading all about different religions, all about different things, like getting knowledge and doing this and getting, as you say, data, right? Yeah. Okay. I'm hearing data from you and I'm sending it back to you so you can go, oh yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. It came from you. Cool. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So it's in there somewhere. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And we're kind of, again, positive reinforcement. We're reinforcing it. It's already there. We just need to reinforce it.
2: That makes sense. When I was a smoker, like, I mean, I know I'm, I'm still a smoker technically, but when I was smoking cigarettes, right. I knew it was bad for me. I knew there was a possibility of developing lung cancer and dying. And I knew this. I was very aware. I was not uninformed. But every single time somebody would tell me that, I would be like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, Get out of my face. (laughs) I know and I've made a decision that I don't want to think about it. So to my point was, you know, you're saying like there is those things in there somewhere. Mm -hmm. I'm just learning how to recognize them by you sort of showing it back to me in that metaphorical mirror.
0: Right. Exactly. And that's why last week I I was telling you when you were talking to me about daughter. Wow. If you went to her after reading where the red Red fern grows or whatever and showed her what it was like, that's you doing it too. Something that, I mean, to me, so cool that we were able to talk about that stuff last week because it was, wow, it's right there. It's right there. You're doing it.
2: I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. My interaction with her is so fun now. We I've completely reset up her whole room. So it's like a spa and a library had a baby. So she's got like a day bed. We painted the walls this like really pretty, you know, like spa, blue, green color. She has a hammock chair and a huge bookshelf. So her whole room is just about oh, wow. reading books and literature. And it's just it's so fun to connect with her on that level. Mm. I love it. So to be able to share that with my daughter is just so much fun.
0: It's cool to hear that. Cause it, it's you seeing in your daughter. And and I say it this way, cause you've said the opposite before the best in you mm. and her taking it and doing her version of it.
2: Yep. It's amazing. Yeah, I love it.
0: You've said to me like, they have the worst of me in them. See right? the worst, uh-huh. yep. <laughs> and the best, they have both. And and at some uh-huh. point, they're going to have their own version of that.
2: Yeah, hopefully without too much therapy. Mm-hmm. Sure. sure. <laughs> be like, okay, let's talk about my childhood. <laughs> my mother. Maybe. Like, I mean, but they,
0: they, and no matter what you do, if you're lucky. Your kids will have an opportunity to talk to a therapist or a friend or a person absolutely, and walk through it. Because all of us have unmet needs, have things that didn't go the way we wanted them to, and need to understand and figure out what that's like and what that means and how that is. Absolutely. The idea is something that you said very early on about them, which is we talk. We talk. Yep. And that's something that you didn't get to do when you were young. Startling to me that that was your experience. You can't even question things. You can't ask things. I think it was your dad originally that you were like, what did you do before this? And it was like, there is no before this.
2: For My father was the only person who would break stuff down for me ever, ever. And he was hardly ever around. So I, yeah, that need was never, that itch was never scratched for sure. And when I did... Scratch it, oh my gosh, it. I would get so much trouble. So to me, when somebody doesn't want to give you information or doesn't want to allow you questions or research or so you can come up with your own informed decision, that's a huge red flag.
1: right? Always. Right.
2: Always for me. Yeah, especially when I was a kid. People are just telling you stuff and you just have to believe it and do it no matter what. Right. And that's just a terrible way to live, especially for a child. All you want to do is ask questions as a child. In my experience with my two children from two years old, why, mom? Why? 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 Always.
0: Well, why? Why, and why? Why do you think they, they were doing that? Why, why do you think we do that?
2: They're collecting data.
0: Exactly. You know. Again, yeah. your, your, your buzzword. And for what purpose?
2: To make their own informed decision.
0: That's not how you were raised, but it, it was what you longed for and what you wanted and what you knew was right, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's something that I think is, is an incredible value of yours, and I see it a lot. You do it with your kids, and you still have a thirst for data. I think your version is a little different than the one we're talking about, right? You're nodding. Like, I'll, I'll tell you what I think, but why do you think I say that?
2: Okay. Do you mean my version when it relates as it relates to me, or just my version across the board?
0: No, no. As it relates to you, because across the board, you, you can see objectively other people gathering data and why they're doing it, what it means for them. But no, no, you, you very much want the data, want more data. I'm going to shut up because I want to see what, what you say about it.
2: Well, I think that because I was so... I was deprived of any kind of education or... Of thought until I was 15 years old mm-hmm. when I ran away mm-hmm. from the calls. To me, the only way I could see going forward to learn, I needed a full picture. So it, it just created this hunger in me to just, before I make a decision, before I decide, I need to know the entire picture.
0: Knowing the entire picture, though. It's allowing you to have all of the, as much of the data as you can get again, but for what purpose, like, what does that serve for you?
2: To form an opinion, to, to decide for myself, Okay. whether I want this, agree with this, want to adopt this, like with religion, that was my first experience into the world of collecting data. Overall, I decided I don't want to be religious because to me, it all ended up as a big jumble with everybody kind of really just believing in a random human except themselves.
0: <laughs> Sometimes the, the most effective religions for people are the ones that allow them to believe in themselves rather than give their belief to someone else. Agreed. It's funny because what I was getting, I told you, I would tell you what I think and why I was asking that. And I had an idea and I think it's actually incorrect but it helped me see what the correct one might be and let's i'm gonna walk through this jump in whenever you you feel
2: i'm gonna i'm gonna sit back and breathe while you talk you're gonna do what
0: (laughs) who are you (laughs) i love it i love it um that's true breath that's not even a vape breath nice so i was looking at if you are so concerned with getting all the data was that is that so I, I can get it right, so I can do it right and make sure, and that's the perfectionist thing that we've talked about. And I was looking for, and am I going to hear that from you? I need to do it perfectly. I need to make sure it's above reproach and, and I don't want to be punished. And I want to make sure I get it right because if I don't get it right, there are severe consequences. That's what I thought.
2: There's for sure an element of that, right. for sure, especially in certain situations, mm-hmm. like with. In in my professional life, for instance. Right. But in the end, I think it all boils down to when I open my mouth and I say, no, this is is the way that this works, or this is the way this happens. It's because I've collected enough data to be confident that I've made a decision. I'm not saying you have to agree with it, but I'm confident that that's what I believe.
0: I think... My assertion there might have been some truth to what I was saying because you said, like, yeah, there's no one in that. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's there. Why I say I'm incorrect is I think you have a fear of ignorance.
2: Absolutely.
0: And I, I think it's there in large part because you've seen people and experienced people repeatedly doing things that not only don't make sense to you, but are inherently wrong and bad
2: hundred percent.
0: This is bad and evil. Absolutely.
2: Bad, evil. Evil is the word I would put. Bad is like, don't stick your finger in the socket, and then (laughs) evil is what I went through as a child. Yeah. And even I would even use words like malevolent as well, because they were calculated decisions made by ignorant fucktards. if I'm allowed to say that word.
0: You can say anything you want.
2: That's really what it's all boiled down to for me. There is something here that's going to upset a lot of people with zero regard, zero data, zero fact, just straight ignorant opinion. To me, that's not acceptable.
0: I have a pet peeve. I don't like incompetence. And we've talked about this because you don't either, but ignorance is different. And I think for, for you, that, that fear of ignorance, it's you've seen what happens when people are uneducated or manipulated. And it's, it's so bothersome, ma- malevolent, like any of that, like you've, you've seen that and you've experienced that and it's painful. And you've, you've had it inflicted on you to the people around you, your brothers and sisters and your friends that you loved. And it's, it's something that I think even now, when you're looking like, I want more data, I want more data. I think you're hyper-vigilant about not doing anything that is wrong, evil.
2: Untested.
0: Malevolent, untested. Like, I want to make sure I'm okay doing this, right? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I'm sure there's a fear there for sure. Yeah. There's still always going to be a part of me, and I say always because I really, truly believe there will always be a part of me that truly believes that at least in the cult I grew up in and the individuals I was exposed to, there is no sound, educated human being that would join a cult, one, like that, and two, do the things that they did. Any educated adult that you know, there is a level of, whether it's willful ignorance, or just plain old ignorance, whatever it is, it, in my opinion, allowed them to accept that bullshit.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because why why wouldn't you question
2: it? Why would you say, well, actually, no, just because an 11-year-old got her period does not mean that she's supposed to start having babies. And it certainly doesn't mean that their babies are supposed to come from 40-year-old right. men, right? And this was literally in their scriptures the bible says so no fucking doesn't go look go read the bible (laughs) go do your research nobody did any of these things yeah they just were like oh okay
0: okay pause because i i i want to intellectually discuss this with you and i'm not going to
2: damn it why (laughs) why
0: i'll tell you why because it's going to mask what you're really feeling about it what i'm what i'm picking up is you're still really fucking angry.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've never gotten to a place where I've accepted forgiveness. Sure, I can forgive, but there's no way I accept, understand, forget nothing. Because it doesn't make sense.
0: Have you let yourself be angry with your brothers and sisters or anywhere?
2: With brothers and sisters, yes. Okay. With the people who hurt me or hurt my brothers and sisters, no, unfortunately.
0: How unresolved does that feel? Because I think that being angry and being so incredibly angry, like it, it, shakes, it shakes your core. What I was hearing just now from you and why I didn't want to go into the intellectual was anger.
2: Yeah, it's, it's definitely there under the surface for sure. I've never allowed myself, I think, to fully feel Hmm. the anger that I should. I, I tried. I allowed myself a little bit toward my stepfather. Right. But all that really entailed was me basically cutting him out of my life for 10, 15 years until he understood what he had done, who he had been, all the fucked up things he had done. And again, there's no way to apologize for that shit. Now all the ripple effects of all the fucked up decisions you made, shit you did, you have to live with that. So I think maybe I push my anger into just my responses like, well, I guess your punishment is you. It's what you have now realized that you have to live with.
0: Freeze frame, freeze frame. Look at your shoulders. Look at your shoulders. They're touching your ears. What am I doing there? You're holding tension. That's holding tension.
2: Oh, okay.
0: Right? We'll kind of tease out where I was going and why I was doing it. I know you like the data, so I'll let you see behind the curtain for a second here. When I would say things to you like, oh, screaming into a pillow. I don't know if you ever did it or not. My guess is no. No. Not yet. Not yet. Right. But I'm looking for where can we direct that? Can that come out? It's almost foreign for you. It's almost not okay because it's not controlled.
2: Yeah. And that is also precipitated through my whole household. Like there is no yelling aloud. There is no fighting. There's no screaming.
0: We don't lose control here. Mm -hmm. Right. I can feel from you and sense from you and hear just based on how you talk about things that there is anger. Like you said, just below the surface. And it's not like, I don't think you're an angry person at all. I think you're a very controlled, composed person. And that's, that can be great and wonderful most of the time when something throws that off, that's when those wild hand gestures all out of place and like, uh, you know, that's when we get anxious. I mean, that's, things have to be just so things need to be like this. And like, no, I, I I need that containment. I need that control. It needs to be like this control is big and being out of control is not okay because you've been manipulated. That's been abused.
2: Yeah, and out of control with with anger or with drinking or with drugs, it shows a lack of self control to me. You know, like to me, that's the person that needs some help. Like I need to take them out of the house and take them for a walk and explain to them that this is not how you behave. Right, right. <laughs> They're human. When in fact, maybe it should be. But again, and I've I've touched on this before, nothing really comes from punching a wall or screaming. Like, what good am I doing? Except, like you pointed out to me, is that I'm releasing or letting that
0: out. Exactly. Exactly. But then,
2: but then what? Then it still all happened, and you know, like everybody (laughs) says, oh well, the trauma response is when somebody who's been abused talks about their life like it's another life right. or like it's, it's a story right. which is exactly how I feel about that the first part of my life was I, I'm looking at it from the outside when I talk about it yeah and if yeah. I ever if I ever think about actually getting in there right. and going back into those places I'll giggle or make mm-hmm. a joke mm-hmm. and change the stuff
0: Right, because the, the emotions are too difficult for us to handle or process, not safe for us to feel, so we don't, right?
2: It has to be the reason, because it's all there, I'm sure, no matter how much I tell myself, I'm fine.
0: Well, you're, you're fine, air quoting fine, and you found a way to keep going, and that, that's great. Like we said early on, I got a handle on it, right? And I don't want you to just lose control. I don't want you to just get angry. I don't want you to punch a wall. I'm not advocating any of that. Sure.
2: No, I understand.
0: In the same way, I don't advocate, oh, just meditate. Like, nope. Yep. You, you're, we're not there.
2: <laughs> I would love to. In the perfect world, that's right. what
1: I like, would Right. Like, sure.
0: I would love to see you put your your hand through a wall and then go meditate and then go, wow, Doug, yeah. you know, I felt <laughs> great. <laughs> like, I'm so much better now. <laughs> right. It's not going to happen that way. What What I think we need to recognize is, yes, that anger is there. And that anger is actually, if you remember, I said, there's three levels. There's the avoidance level, there's the angry level, and then there's the real emotional level under that. You don't want to go to the emotional level right now. It's not safe. It doesn't feel good.
2: No, I'm at the avoidance level. Right. For, for 40 years or right. 30 years or however right. long.
0: Because it served you. You needed to be. Yeah. And the angry level, sometimes with brothers and sisters. Okay. Yep. Yeah. The emotional level, that's still, t- I mean, that's, the, we, we go right back to avoidance. And, and that's where, you know, last week when you said boyfriend, said, are you weeping? Yes, don't look at me. I went emotional for a second, then I went right back up there to avoidance.
2: Yep. And even with my brothers and sisters, when we get to those places, One of us, at least, maybe a lot of times it's two of us that think, okay, whoa, that shit got dark and we'll just bounce right out of it. You know, when we feel ourselves sort of going in deeper, 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 then we're like, shit, Right. (laughs) you know, enough of that. I'm sure it's all coping mechanisms, but.
0: It is exactly. And yeah, and and, yeah, we cope to protect for sure. Yeah. And it's something that I'll highlight. You have the capacity to go there because you have. Okay.
2: Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I take your word for that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's something, there's a nice sigh. And it's it's something that we're not going to go there all the time. I'm highlighting this stuff because a, a lot of how you're doing things, not trying, but how you're doing things is walking through them, increasing your awareness. I am going to look for places with you where we can acknowledge the emotional experience and that too. So we can have that emotional awareness. It doesn't mean you're going to go around being angry and punching holes in walls or crying all the time. Not at all. I just want us to recognize that that's there.
2: Yeah, and I feel like I need to, when we just talked on the phone, I told you, I know my weird quirks and things that I see, but there is a reason Right uh-huh. And all of these things, all of the tips and you know, stuff that I'm clearly teaching myself.
0: Yes, ma'am. In our session well said. I like um, it. I like
2: it. <laughs> it's all very helpful for like a 9-1 or a band-Aid, right? But it's not really addressing the causality yeah. of why am I having that? And I know why because we have to go there, right? We have to go into our mm-hmm. file cabinet. I mean I do want to do that work. I don't know that I can promise you we'll do that and then I'll go punch pillow. No, you no, know no, I might no, no. do that with and, you right. and then snap right out of it again.
0: Sure. And that's that's fine. We're going at your pace. We're going at the pace that's safe and I will I will push without pushing over. So if things feel a little uncomfortable, okay? And we might come right up to that point. We're not going to re-traumatize. We're not going to go somewhere that, that's going to leave you raw and there. Like, no, we'll walk through it as we walk through it. And, and sometimes the way that I work is it might be a little more subtle sometimes.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And then I'll kind of pull that subtlety out and go, hey, look at what we just did. And sometimes it will be directly going to, okay, well, wait, what was that emotion? What was coming up? And we will go there. Mm-hmm. and touch it and feel it and have it be okay and see that it's a part of us. A lot of what, what's happened to you isn't just going to go away, but we don't need to necessarily carry it around as the thing we can't touch. Sure. We can't go to, it's too dark. Nope. Don't want to do it. Nope. Can't do it.
2: Early on when we started talking, every time we would go into those places, what really made an impression on me that you said was I'm sorry that happened to you. Like all of a sudden you were validating that pain that I haven't touched for many, many years. It it really, I don't know. It really affected me every time you would say, I'm, you know, look at me and say, I'm sorry that happened to you Mm -hmm. because I was like, shit. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry that fucking happened to me too. I've never allowed myself to, to feel that level of, truth and the emotion that would would come with it right i i look at it on a more overall level i think about me as a child and my kids and i want to punch a wall <laughs> i certainly yeah. want to punch a few people <laughs> who i grew up with
0: yes ma'am but
2: that's about as, as far as i've ever gone emotionally
0: absolutely and right now we just touch something
2: everything we'll put a pin in it
0: Exactly. But I want to pin it and I'm going to come back to it with what you just said in mind. What you just said, I mean, about, I've never allowed myself to feel it. I've always had to put a handle on it or keep it compartmentalized or, or do this. Right. It's not lost on me that there's a gap in what I know about you from, I ran away from the cult at 15 to very quickly it was I was taking care of my brothers and sisters. Okay.
2: I mean, it's me, Doug. Hello. No.
0: But from, from 15 to how that happened. So at some point rather than process your own experience, you went, I'm going to take care of everybody. Right. And it's, it's, Oh, I don't need an oxygen mask on the plane. I can breathe just fine. I'm going to put it on everybody else.
2: Because I've, I've always been like, no fucking way. I'm putting masks on my kids first.
0: Here's what your brain has, has known incorrectly and correctly.
2: Mostly incorrect.
0: I, right. I don't pass out. Yep. I can take it.
2: Yep. I can breathe at 60,000 feet. No problem. Right.
0: Right. I can breathe underwater. No problem. And the reality might be you can. But I'll die. Well, look at how you're breathing. We need to learn how to breathe. We need to learn to put our mask on first. But so much of you has been putting the mask on everybody else so much of the time that the, the version I'm talking about with putting the mask on yourself is allowing yourself to recognize your own emotional experience of what you've gone through, not by virtue of taking care of everyone else and helping them out. It's you. And that, that's what I'm putting a pin in.
2: Yeah. And that's a big pin for me too. That's like- it's huge. Huge. my goal yeah that's sort of the path i've been trying to get to
0: and we'll get there because a lot of that is you know you've heard me say it like well who was taking care of you well no one i was
2: now you are doug one hour a week
0: and, and we'll go full circle with this i am by virtue of you what i said to you earlier you are parenting yourself right now i am reflecting that back to you
2: yeah like that I never would have thought of it that way, well, but I... And,
0: and as we talk about, you weren't parented very well back then. And That's an understatement. <laughs> <Yeah>. You were <laughs> parented horribly back then. We, you and I, you through me, have the opportunity to parent yourself now and see what that'll be like. What that might involve is bringing little Sarah out and letting her express her needs and her feelings so that we can be the parent she didn't get. And we can do that reparative work and have that experience so those emotions that are underneath the avoidance, the anger, and and that sit way down there, that place that brothers and sisters will go, and then, whoa, that got deep. We can go there, we can go there, and we can parent that, and we can nurture that, validate that. Can't change it. We can't change it. We can't erase it. No. But we can see it and we can see you. Yes. Absolutely. That's the healing. And and I I don't think we could have done that a few months ago. No. I don't know that we're well, gonna be able yeah, to do it. I mean, <laughs> You're like, I could go there, sure. No, but I can do whatever. Right, right, but right. now, uh-uh, uh-uh, Nope, nope. <laughs> what you kidding. what you did right there, I know what you did right know, there, know. you know. And if it makes it in the episode, we'll play it back and you'll hear it. That's you kind of going, I can do it, I can do it. Like uh, let me, Obviously. We're, right right we're gonna do it in a in a compassionate nurturing way okay you are an incredible parent thank you giving you the opportunity to be that parent for yourself and hear what that's like man i yeah
2: that's gonna be crazy
0: <laughs> that's gonna be crazy amazing
2: yeah i'm i'm looking forward to that for sure
0: Yeah. yeah we'll get there
2: i'm thinking through things more and And hearing what we've talked about so really it's actually really quite amazing yeah i don't i don't nail it every time but just the fact that i'm aware of the fact that i can take a breath and take a step back is is already very exciting for me
0: and we are back what'd you think ma
1: I think that she's made a lot of progress and this particular session is remarkable for marking that progress.
0: Hmm. How so?
1: Well, there's a little bit of a shift for her, which I think is actually a big shift hmm. in that she's letting you explain her process to her.
0: Yeah. Much yeah.
1: much more in detail and I I have to say To do that requires a level of vulnerability on her part that she hasn't shown before. In terms of measuring the kind of healing that she's doing and the kind of recovery that she's making, the fact that she doesn't have to be as defended against Mm -hmm. you is very important. I noticed that I've been hearing in several of the recent sessions that the overenunciation is falling right. by the wayside yeah there was no over-annunciation here but i i think it struck me that when you're when you're in a situation where you don't feel emotionally safe right and in a cult where people have access to you the way people had access to her physically mentally emotionally there was no way to have to keep herself private or separate from them.
0: Right. She was almost like geared to not have a self.
1: Exactly. That's what cults do. They destroy, they isolate you, and then they destroy your individuality.
0: Yeah, exactly. So
1: she wasn't able to let that happen to herself. She maintained her individuality. And I think she did it by taking on the role of protector. Right. She was able to use herself as a buffer between her siblings and some of the other people in the cult, some of the other children in the cult, and the the perpetrators. I remember an early session you did with her where she talked about her sister running to the bathroom to read a story or tell her a story before they were going to get punished. Well, when you think about it, if you're a kid and you know that somebody can stuff a bar of soap down your throat or lock you in a room without feeding you or listening to you cry or letting you out, and they have total control of you that way, then there is no way to feel safe. Right. And there's no way to feel that you can keep the sanctity of yourself apart from all that. Right. And so for her not to dissolve into victimhood, which she didn't do. Right. She took on a buffering role. She took on the role of protector of the other kids.
0: Yeah, and that that's it's really interesting that you pointed out that way because she will look at her brothers and sisters and some of the other people that she grew up with who had turned to drugs or the sister that became a storyteller and some that when we were talking in the intro about multiple personality disorder, some will dissociate entirely from self and become a different person and personality altogether. So the bad thing happened to that person and this person gets to be free from that. Right.
1: Right.
0: Yeah. And, and it's, I, I don't know that she's really got an appreciation for being that buffer, that protector that that's how she got through it and what she did. And it's a coping mechanism and it's the wall that we talk about.
1: Exactly. And I think that for her to be able to be victimized by people, but not to become a victim was amazing.
0: Oh, right. And she really did not like the term trauma survivor when I use that for her. Right, right. And she even said, yeah, I don't want to be one of those victims. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think we dug into that because I yeah. wanted her to recognize. Yeah. And yet, you were still victimized,
1: right? But the, you know, there's a huge amount of shame in that. Yeah. For the people who've been victimized, because somebody who has that kind of access to you owns your sense of self. They 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 just have every way of reaching you. There, there's no part of you that you can keep separate from them, right? Which is why the alternate personalities form.
0: Right, right.
1: One of the reasons why.
0: Sure. And it's, it's also why we look for altered states. Mm-hmm. And even something which was really cool at the very beginning of this session, that she w- was a little anxious and she even joked about it and said, I calmed myself down by not reaching for the Xanax, by stopping and recognizing my headspace. Even though she'll look at things like needing to to hit the vape or or needing to throw herself into data. You know, she's very big on that. And that that's where what she was saying about her neuroses and her awesomeness is budgeting, like around budgeting. That's I'm really good at finances, I'm really good at this. That's she'll throw herself into that as a way of calming herself down. Yet I kind of think that's a way of keeping herself up and keeping herself in that like you said, buffering mode or that guard, that uber control.
1: Well, she has to have a sense of mastery over something. If your only options are to be completely victimized or have some mastery over something, you're going to go for the mastery.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. She can have a moment of feeling out of control and anxious and calm herself without going towards something just to cope with that, like taking a beat and recognizing that's what she was feeling. And it was really interesting to walk through it with her and talk about this with her and hear her start to go into it again.
1: Well, it was wonderful from my point of view to hear her do that with you, because for one thing, she is an extraordinarily intelligent person. Right. She's really, really smart. And I think she's finally accepting the fact that you're pretty smart yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I, she I, doesn't know you as well as right. I do, but
0: <laughs> I have my moments
1: that you really do a lot. And they were of them. both
0: in this session. <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> right. You were uh, like a worthy teacher. She granted you that you were a worthy teacher for her.
0: And we kid. I was aware of that early on, and was really looking for. I don't want to be the teacher that's Mm -hmm. the same white male power figure, dominant, controlling expert. Like, nope, I I don't want to have that role. So every time she would say something like, oh, yeah, I'm probably wrong. You tell me what it is. Like, well, no, I'll tell you what I'm thinking, but you go first. Yeah. Wow. Look at that. You weren't wrong. And I kept wanting to show that she is ultimately the teacher. And that's what we wound up with towards the end of this session she's parenting herself.
1: Exactly. But it's because of the exquisite nature of the way you've been doing therapy with her that that came about.
0: Thank you. And it really is the two of us because what you're, yeah. what you're talking about that, and we've mentioned this a few times, the trust and the, the vulnerability and the rapport, she was going into something and I, I stopped her twice. And I really said, hey, I'm going to jump in here. It kind of was a leap on my part I knew we had that trust and I knew she would do it. I had to be careful that she wasn't doing it because the guy in control told her to, Mm -hmm. right? That would be re-traumatizing without her unconsciously Mm re-traumatizing, right? So I'd stop her and just said, hey, I want to jump in. And even joking, like, yeah, a better therapist would just let you rant to kind of downplay it. And she'd go, no, no, no. Yeah, no, you're good. I got you. Let's go. What is this? And we were able to do what you were alluding to, talk about the process, not the content.
1: Exactly. And that was an enormous amount of trust on her part because she's so armored. And, right. and so I don't like to say defended because I, don't, I think that does a disservice to her. I think she was protected, but not defended.
2: Right and, right.
1: and she's she's stronger than someone who who's defended. So I was very impressed with that. But she was able to let you lead her where you wanted her to go. Right. And right. you were on your end of it have been taking the time to to do that incrementally as she gets to the point where she can take over her part of the process. Right. That's the art of therapy in my opinion.
0: Hmm. Nice. Well, I am an artist. You are indeed. <laughs> it's cool that she's trusting that and going with that because it's it's art that involves somebody else and we're talking about the way somebody thinks and feels and processes. And that really is and I mean part art, part brain surgery so to speak and you have to blend the two.
1: Exactly. And it made me stop and think that in one way of looking at it the whole business of therapy is a matter of learning to trust. Right. And I thought, wow, she has so much of her trust broken. I mean, she her her whole whole entire ability to trust on every level was attacked and destroyed. Right. Because that was what a cult tried to do was take ownership of your being and not leave anything for you to own.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: So for you to be able to work with her as she gathers the sense of trust back into herself
0: it's interesting mom because she talks about gathering data you know she talks about that mm-hmm. a lot i want the data mm-hmm. and having grown up sheltered she wants data she wants to know she wants facts she likes that and i i just realized something as you were talking about it is all the data points are within her it's knowing her that's going to be her greatest source of data. And we're just, just now starting to unlock that with that vulnerability and that trust to go, okay, let's, let's look at you.
1: Exactly.
0: I kind of like drove at for her that idea of we're learning to depend on, on you. And she said, she says things like, well, I trust you, Doug. Well, you can go there. And I keep throwing it back to, well, it, it's really you. It's really you.
1: I was just looking at a little note that I made about the session that she was testing you a little bit to demonstrate whether or not she could trust you. If I tell you this, how will you react? Mm. And, and then it's like, okay, well, then how will you react if I tell you this? Right. And then what about this one? Right. And so you're constantly being tested, which is the way it should be. Right, not that she's suspicious of you, but just that the process of learning to trust, when you, when a person's trust has been destroyed so completely and at such a young age,
0: well, I, and I think an offshoot of that is she doesn't trust herself. She will say she does. I think she trusts the version of her that is that buffer, that is that. That mama bear that is the one that will take care of everything, but trusting what she actually feels and and her instincts, I don't think that's there. And that's what we're trying to bring out.
1: Well, that's going to be a long time coming because because she's very lucky that she's uh, the oldest of her siblings. She isn't. Oh, she's not? No, she's in the middle. Oh, my goodness. I thought for some reason, well, that just... Shows you how much I miss.
0: <laughs> she has like ten or eleven siblings.
1: That I remember.
0: Yeah, she is not the eldest. She she is, I think, kind of in the middle.
1: Mm. Okay, I think the the point that I was thinking about was that it's easy to be able to work up a sense of trust when you've got other children or other people to be concerned about. When she does the mama right. bear thing, right. She has a role that's defined for her. But when she puts herself in that position, it's a different story.
0: Right. I sort of did a version of that that I love doing because it's very subtle, but if you understand that that's what's happening, it's something you said, like it has a clinical purpose. When she told me she wants me to tell me what I think, you know, why do you think that? I think it was when she was talking about um, collecting data and gathering data and I said, yeah, you needing to having this thirst to, to you know, get it right and, and knowing the entire picture and having all the data and, and, and knowing it for sure, what purpose does that serve? I even said, I, I'll tell you what I think, but I want to hear what you think first. She's talked about like forming an opinion for herself, which was amazing. Amazing that she said that, especially because she talked about, you know, religion and the role that that played in the cult and, and how those things worked. And it was really, to me nice to hear her talk about something. And I got to say to her, yeah, so what I initially thought was actually incorrect. And I'll tell you what it is. With full transparency and giving her agency and a sense of what you were thinking was right, because we're talking about your thought.
1: And that's one of the things that she's still learning to trust. I think that from her work, which As I understand it from the sessions that she's described her work life in, she has the kind of professional life where she has a context for being able to trust data and information. Right. But on a personal level where she has to trust data and information about herself, that was systematically destroyed in her. And it was very dangerous to be able to have that kind of sense of self.
0: Yeah, and and here, I'll <laughs> I'll throw something at you that's kind of a revelation right now. It's There's a line I used in this, and I'll get to that in a second. But I, I think along the lines of what you're saying and of what she has said, the cult tried to create ignorant followers. They gave them a fifth grade education and nothing beyond that. They just wanted them to churn out babies and not think for themselves, right? So that's going on. And as she was talking about collecting data and gathering the information, what I wrongly thought, and this is what I told her, is that it was that perfectionist thing. So if you gather all the data and you do something above reproach, you will not get beaten and you will be okay. That's wrong. And she said, well, no, there's still an element of that. Like, okay, there's also something else there. And that's when I said the line that I think is, is very accurate here, which is, I think you have a fear of ignorance, And I'll take it one step further as we break it down, that that fear of ignorance, her sense of self was kept ignorant. So there's a fear of that self, which is a beautiful self. It's her as she originally formulated, as she was, as she knew things were wrong or things were right, like her gut, her instinct. But that was trained to become ignorant. And she fears that. So that doesn't get to come out.
1: Hmm. Very interesting.
0: Right? Did that, that get a little too heady there?
1: I think I'd love to hear you go back and say it again <laughs> in, in, in other words, but I'm not sure if this is the time to do that or not.
0: Well, let's, let's scratch at it a little bit.
1: Oh, I'd love that.
0: Sure. So the idea of being kept ignorant, I think we've established what that means in, mm-hmm. in cult life for her. I think her sense of self was never really allowed to come out. It's something that whether it's her her instinct or her nature, she said it in different ways. Like, I'm a happy person at my core. Like, eh, maybe at your core core, but there's the real protective layer around it. Then there's a kind of false happy core that's just showing people everything's happy or here's how it needs to be happy. But her core core, that to me, and I use the word ignorant, it's it's not actually ignorant. It's not trusted by her, uh, not safe. It's too vulnerable, so it's protected.
1: Yeah, I mean, it could have gotten her virtually killed, N- not literally, but I mean, unless well,
0: virtually some... and literally beaten, and right? Punished. I, I and mean, it did
1: if she had been hurt badly enough and neglected long enough, it might have had dire consequences. Well,
0: for some, for some of her siblings, and for some other people in the cult, it did. You know, she said several times there were countless people that I knew that I grew up with that have committed suicide, that have turned to drugs. And I didn't. Mm-hmm. Right? And that that's something that I, I think is it's somewhat heroic. It's also incredibly tragic.
1: It is. And the irony is, is that the very thing that could keep you safe could get you killed. Hmm. That if she knew too much about herself and how life worked, she could be destroyed by the people in the cult.
0: Right. Right. Which is why she had to leave in order to figure that out and follow that.
1: Right. And thank goodness she knew to leave. I mean, 15 years old, that's just amazing to me.
0: Right. And it's something that I don't ever want to gloss over with her that she just did that because that's huge. And- Something about talking about it, especially in this episode, because I, I, during this session, I I poked at it, that she, when she was talking about the cult, she was getting intellectual, Mm -hmm. which she often does and going, okay, so why are these people like this? Why would any educated human do this? And what, and she's trying to understand it. And that's something that she says to herself a lot. And to me, I, I'm trying to understand, I'm trying to understand and I just wanted to stop and go, hey, I don't want to go intellectual. You sound really angry. And let her tap into that. She even said, I've never allowed myself to fully feel the anger. Mm. Right?
1: That's going to be so healing for her when she does, but it's going to be terrifying to get there.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that's... (laughs) I I even half jokingly said to her, I'd love to see you put your hand through a wall and then go meditate.
1: I love that when you said that.
0: Right. And that that's, I say this to clients a lot that there's, to me there's, and, and you can see the visual, but people on the podcast can't. I say that there's three levels. There's the avoidance level where we'll just not talk about something or do drugs or work a lot or whatever it is, we will avoid something. Then there's the anger level where we'll hold it and then there's the level underneath the anger, where if we can access the anger and then go beyond that, these are the real feelings. This is what's really going on. These are the emotions that are not safe to feel.
1: Right, and trying to integrate those back into herself, right, without feeling that it makes her too vulnerable, right, would be wonderful for her. That that would be so restorative for her.
0: And that's what we're doing. That's what I was saying about we, we, you. Are parenting yourself, and I even said that thing, you know, (laughs) when we were talking about the the oxygen mask, like learning to put it on yourself first, right? Taking care of yourself first, and and she said, "We'll get there." And I saying something like, "Well, who's taking care of you?" And she said, "Well, you are, Doug."
1: I loved that because this is this was the session where she literally made a statement of trusting you. Yes.
0: Yes. And I will say this too, objectively, I love how I how I handled that and threw that back to her.
1: Yes. And I think, I think I know you well enough to know that inside you loved how it made you feel, because this is why you do the work you do.
0: Yeah. And the old me, I think before I became a therapist, maybe even early on as a therapist, I'd like to think not, but maybe early on someone would say, well, now you're taking care of me, Doug, I would go, yes, I am. And it would feel great. And I'm doing great at my job. And that is wonderful. And the level that I reach now, that is, yes, I am by virtue of doing this with you.
1: Well, you just have to admit that you've matured.
0: <laughs> I know you have, but what am I? Wait, no, I said that wrong.
1: Damn it, mom.
0: <laughs> ah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, what were you eating under there? What? What were you eating under there? Eating. Yeah, under there.
1: Are you gonna get me to say underwear?
0: I was trying. Come on. Oh my
1: gosh.
0: Yeah, well, I guess I haven't matured. (laughs) (laughs) But you have, Mom. You are quite mature and I watch it.
1: Watch it, kiddo.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well beyond your years. You Mm. hardly seem 63.
1: Mm. Uh Uh-huh.
0: Well, I, I don't even know where to go on that. Is there anything that you wanted to hit that we touched on in the session that we didn't get to talk about yet?
1: I just think that for from my point of view, having listened to all the Sarah episodes, that for one thing, both of you are blessed to have found each other because each of you is doing something for the other that's really a gift. Hmm. And for Sarah to be able to have the kind of therapy that's going to allow her to trust herself at the levels that you're leading her to reach right, and not take away her sense of agency. That's the beautiful part of it, is that you are absolutely never disempowering her at all, and you're not falsely empowering her. You're simply attending to her, in a very, very authentic and, and good way so that mm. you've got a good read on her and who she is, and you're letting her values and, and the things that matter to her define her to you, mm. and, and you're supporting them and embellishing them, and that's quite wonderful. There aren't that many people in the profession who do that.
0: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And it, it comes in large part from experience.
1: Well, I thought you were going to say it comes in large part from the example your mother said. In
0: a way, I, yeah, because I mean, we're teaching Sarah how to parent herself. I had to teach me how to parent myself because my mom was, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I appreciate you saying all that, because it, it, I don't know, it, it, this is how I practice. And It's, I guess, learned and and experienced over time. I learned some of it from you, from dad, from my mentors, from my teachers, from my guides, from my therapists, and I put it all together.
1: And from deep inside yourself, there's a part of your core. Who? Me? Yeah, yeah, you. A part of your core that's connected to the best that there is in people. and And to have a certain sense of joy and commitment to bringing that out in other people is a real gift for them and for you.
0: Thank you. I said it last time, and it really is true. They pay me for it. Oh.
1: <laughs> God help me. I'm so sorry. I don't know who to apologize in the universe first. I, who do I apologize to for this?
0: <laughs> uh, you can start with me.
1: <laughs> uh, no, I I think it's, it's really wonderful, Doug. It really is.
0: Thanks, Mama. I appreciate it. I appreciate you coming on here and doing this with me. I know now, you, now you've now you got the, the feeling for it. Now you really want to do it. So you'll have to arm wrestle Meredith and, and see if she'll let you do it again. Um, but,
1: um, <laughs> Meredith owns her place in the podcast beautifully.
0: <laughs> Indeed, she does. Yeah. And she will be back with me next time we do with Sarah. Actually, I lied. I think Bonnie is doing the next one with me.
1: Oh, cool. Meredith
0: will be back after that. And she is on the Patreon with me. You actually did both, Ma. You were, you were the first one to be on an episode with me that aired on the main podcast and the Patreon. Really? Yeah. What do you think about that?
1: I think that's great. Yeah. Wow. That's right. I'm honored.
0: Those residual checks are just going to come rolling uh- <laughs> in. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you guys for listening, Mama. Thank you for joining me or letting me join you here in, in your home.
1: Thank you for having me, Douglas. I really appreciate it.
0: You're very welcome. And we will talk to you guys soon. Bye.
1: Bye.